0: From Grooveview Studios in Columbus, Ohio, this is Getting the Brand Back Together, a podcast exploring the interdisciplinary art of banding, branding, and business building. Rock and Roll Relic, poet, writer, and brandist, I'm your host, Brad Cercone. Today, we're joined by Andy Flick, the director of Midwest Promotions for RCA Records, part of the Sony
1: Music Group. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brad always good to see you
0: great to see you again i think the last time we did something together may have been more than a decade prior
1: hmm. right i think i know what you're talking about yeah yeah we yeah, yeah.
0: were judges of a band off if you will yeah. right yeah It was fun at yeah at promo west mm-hmm. it was a good time there were now there were four judges or five i can't remember were you the tiebreaker do you know how many were, like, were there? Were there four or five of us?
1: I, I would think there would be five.
0: Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. All I know is there was some metal band that we watched towards the end. They blew me away. That blew you and I
1: were like, let's sign them. Yeah. <laughs> Most people are looking sideways, like, what is this? And, and you I and I are like, of I'm I'm like that's what I'm looking for. Like, this, that was, that was a band who knew who they were. Right. And just knew how to deliver it. Right. Right. And talk about tight. I mean, usually you hear
0: that in that genre, it -hmm. can be tight and sometimes it can be loosey-goosey, but I mean, this was like jazz metal almost, right? It was, yeah. (laughs) So you've had a stellar career and a sustaining one under the Sony Entertainment umbrella, which is impressive for those of you who may not have been inside the rock and roll entertainment business, whether it's as an artist or as a functioning part of it. Andy's
1: been doing this 26 years. Is that right? Yeah, I've been lucky. You know, I, I started my first job working in music was actually working at Promo West as an intern. And I did not know that. That is uh, that's how I got my start. You know, I just walked in their office one day with, with the resume and said, I, I don't care what the job is. Just, I got to get into the business in some way. They did not have a, a spot for an intern, but they said, look, if you're willing to work for free, come down to the Newport, we'll put you to work and, and you can kind of see what the business is all about. So I did that for three months and Scott Steiner there at Promo West was great to me. And at the end of, of that period of time, he said, well, you know, what is it you want to do? Right. And, and I told him I really wanted to work for a label. And he put me in touch with a guy named Chris Waltman, also a, a Columbus guy that um, at the time was working for Columbia. Chris now you know, manages some amazing bands, a band called Half Alive that, that's on RCA and uh, 21 Pilots from Columbus. But at the time, Chris was in the uh, rock department at Columbia. So I ah. called him and he put me in touch with the, the college marketing department. And they had an opening in Columbus. So as a student at Ohio State, I got to be a, a college bridge. marketing rep. And I did that for uh, almost two years. And that was probably the greatest job in the music business.
0: Okay, why because, do you say that?
1: Because you don't have the stress of feeling like you have to deliver. It was all about just immersing yourself in the music and talking about it and sharing it with college radio and lifestyle so it was organic. And marketing. It was very organic, but it was maybe two weeks after I was hired I found myself in New York City at CMJ and just seeing these amazing bands from around the country and these iconic venues, College Music Journal has uh, an event every year. And that was sort of my introduction, both to Sony and to, you know, just music at large, just outside of somebody working at a club. So, I did the college rep thing for a couple of years, and then Sony hired me to be a field marketing rep, yeah. which was doing retail. So, back when, you know, there were a lot of record We had stores. retail. There were a lot of them. Peaches. Yeah. Right? I, um, I had Wizards. about, I think I had 65 or 70 record stores. That, Give me some that, brand names. I mean, it was Coconuts. Coconuts. Record Town. And then it was like the cool places on campus, you know, Use Kids Records yeah. and Magnolia Thunder Pussy and a bunch of like really awesome places, but…
0: And Coconuts um, was on Morris Road. That was the… Yeah,
1: well, there were there were because when our few
0: record came out, uh, we did some in store at that coconuts.
1: Oh sure, and yeah. Camelot, remember Camelot, Camelot music? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there were a lot of those uh, accounts that I would call on, and you know, I was the guy that went out, you know, set up in store play promotions and hung posters and did displays. But that was a little too far from the music yeah. for me. I remember being really depressed one day because I was out and putting up displays. I thought I did a great job. And then I look over in the store and here's a guy from like M&M's doing the exact same thing I was doing, but for, for candy. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like I'm in the music business, but but am but, I the candy but, man? But, but yeah. And, and it was kind of like one of those things like, this isn't uh, exactly what I want to be doing. So I was really happy when I had an opportunity to, uh, moved to Chicago, and start doing radio promotion for Columbia. And uh, Columbia moved me around a lot. I mean, okay, I, was in, so in I was in Chicago for what a year. year. Give us a year. This was 98. Okay, good time. And yeah, so this is my first year doing radio promotion. The business is still firing on all cylinders at that point. Yeah, hot. Yeah, it was great. So over the course of several years, I mean, I moved from, you know, Chicago to Cleveland, almost to Nashville. I was there for three months and then Dallas for about five years. And then I got back here to Columbus, got back here in 2005. And then I covered the mid Atlantic for a couple of years from here. But for the last several years, I've been, I've been here, but um, Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I moved from, one division of Sony Music, which was Columbia, over to RCA Records in 2009. Been with RCA ever since. So, yeah, it's been 26 years with Sony, but a lot of different jobs and a couple of big iconic labels, the uh, the two longest-running record labels there are yes. in Columbia and RCA. So, yeah. I've been really fortunate. That's and, now, awesome. and now I'm a little closer to the music than the Candyman.
0: Than the candy <laughs> Eminem guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And I love that you brought that up, that you said that, you know, since you've had so many roles, Andy within the business, it's great that you're staying sensitive to what gave you the passion the beginning to get in when you asked Steinecker or somebody over there at Promo mm-hmm. West to say, hey, give me a job. And they did at the Newport. But then as you went through various uh, occupations within the business, you said yes to some things that you enjoyed and some other things pulled you farther away from that art. Sure. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the whole reason I want to work in the music business. I mean, right. it's, um, you know, you look at these incredible artists and how they have the ability to connect with people and move people. I mean, really, is there anything better than, no. than music?
0: No, I say I mean, it, it's,
1: it's the, subjective. You know, what I like, you might not like or, you know, vice versa. But but that's the beauty of it.
0: Right, right. And, uh, you know, people say to me at all, do you play anymore? Right. Mm. After my years, which was uh, we were we put out a record in 88 and 92. hmm. Some, it's two records in that five-year span. Yeah,
1: Sticks and but, Stones is a great record. Oh, thank you. Mm.
0: They asked me, do you still play? And I said, you know, no, once a junkie's off of it, he's off of it. If I would to go back, I had to hide my instruments from myself for one year, mm. which was very, very difficult just so I could get into another business because that art itch, creating, having a creative expression in anything in life are all the same thing.
1: Yeah, but you may have put your guitar away, right? But you found your creative creativity. I did elsewhere. I did. I did. You know, I mean, yeah, it's it's going to come out of you, and so you. Right. Are. Right. Exactly. So, you and
0: I were talking in previous conversation, and um, and I thought it was fascinating when we're talking about bands and brands. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about promotion in in specific. But you and I were having this conversation just over the phone when we were talking about your appearance on uh, getting the brand back together. And there are some bands who are just stellar as artists and bands. Mm-hmm. There's bands that over time actually become brands, right? Not that that's more or less than a band. It's a different way of packaging. And then there are artists that, have, that are bands and they are very successful brands and they build a thing called, you know, a, a business model
1: sure.
0: around their entertainment. Mm-hmm. When you think back in all your years, I'm sure you are saying, here's a great artist and we don't need to be specific about who that is, but I want to talk to you about the process, Andy, yeah. that here's a great artist that is great at being an artist they're not necessarily as talented at packaging that as a brand and what that means. There are other artists that may be more successful that are brands first and artists second. When you think about that, obviously the best balance is if you can be both, right? Over time. Mm. What do you think the challenges are in the landscape today, especially the speed, the digital terrain of bands becoming brands um, and the validity of that, and if you even think it's necessary, and uh, understanding the discipline of business inside the
1: entertainment industry. You know, I would start by saying that I think every band is a brand. Um, you know, Some I, are just I, further I, along. And every person is a brand. You have a right. personal brand. Right. Um, I, I don't think there's any getting away from that. You know, you think of... You think of an artist, you think of the the brand associations. Like if I if I say an artist's name, there's something that comes to mind. Right. 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 Um and all the brand elements, you know, their logo, their album covers. I like go all, all those things, everything is is linked to that artist. Um, so I would say that that every artist is a brand. But um, I think the main hurdle for most artists is the realization that your brand is not what you say it is. It's what other people say it is. And if if there's If there's a problem of, you know, a a disassociation between those two things, then either you're wrong about your brand or your communication strategy is flawed. It's one of those two things. Um, So brand building obviously is important for, for any brand, any company, any artist. Uh, But I think, you know, the, the most important thing is, you know, you have to embrace the fans and the people, you know, your audience Mm -hmm. and as marketers, As promoters, you know, our job is to take, you know, that whatever that story is that is relevant to your target audience, we take that and amplify it as much as we can through the right channels at the right times to connect to the the right audience and the music to the fans and the people that are looking for that. All of that is part of brand building, uh, imaging. And by the way, saying no… Is sometimes more important than saying yes. Just Absolutely. because there's a paycheck in something doesn't mean that it, it, it's a good idea. And yeah. it, because you think of, of different things that artists can get um, involved with, if something is off brand,
0: right, it's a ruined, it's it can ruin. It's confusing to ru- your fans. Could ruin your entire career. It, it
1: could. Even if there's a big paycheck attached, right. it doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah, you know, look at an artist like, like Pitbull. If I say Pitbull. All of a sudden, you get all these images, right? I do. Mr. 305, it's Miami. He's always well dressed. He's got the glasses on. These are all parts of his brand. Yeah. He's got his own vodka, which is Volley 305, tying back into Miami. Yeah. Um, you know, he's got a, a clothing line. He's got a restaurant that, you know, is something like I love 305. He had Everything brand, ties back. Brand partnerships with. Um, I think it was Dodge and it was Bud Light and it was Dr. Pepper. So there are ways to tie into things that can stay on brand. But I think he was very smart and continues to be very smart, whether you like his music or not. If you think about somebody who's made a brand for themselves, that, that is, that's branding at its finest. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great example because he's actually tying in an entire region, a classification of music, a city, and he's done it beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great point.
1: Yeah. But the other thing is that, you know, if you're a brand, let's say you make some arbitrary products, right. You know, it's pretty easy to communicate that over time and find your target audience. But when you are a recording artist, every song kind of contributes to the expansion of your brand. So, you know, think about, you know, you know, you may love a single from some artist and then the next one, you're like, oh, no. Right. Off the mark.
0: Because it doesn't fit in your brand because picture it of that artist. It doesn't fit into what
1: you expected right, right, from them. So right. the brand evolves over time. That's right. why these heritage artists, you look at like an Aerosmith or an ACDC, Stones. Stones, like you've got this gigantic body of work. Catalog. You've got this catalog and you know exactly who they are over time. They've grown. But for a new artist, that's difficult.
0: Especially today.
1: Especially today. It's not album centric. It's not. It's not, it's, it's very single oriented. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to build a brand when people have a very small, you know, segment of what you do available to them.
0: So I absolutely love that. So Seth Godin wrote a a great blog um, years ago. I'm going to paraphrase. And he says, rock and roll, as we know it is dead. And his statement, his provocative statement is that because of time, and that we're not making albums, there is not time for reflection. There's not time to collect tunes, right? That we say, this is a moment, a slice of the time in the band. If you think of bands like Queen, or The Stones, Exile on Main Street, right? Mm -hmm. Those albums are thematic to the time of the band and the brand. Mm -hmm. And in a single driven world, and, you know, how many downloads do we have? There is not that same—they don't have the same gestation period to reflect, right? You would no, agree.
1: they don't. And, and you don't have, you know, that cushion. You
0: right. Know, you really don't. It's- what makes a great album are the songs in between that you think—like, I remember the Cars first record, right? Great record. Great sound. We're all like, what, what are they doing with these chug beats in a synth? What is going <laughs> on? Right. Yeah, That was in that whole new wave thing. And you could say, yeah, I like Let the Good Times Roll or whatever. But then you listen back as you keep listening. Because we lived with albums for three or four months. All of a sudden, the ones that you thought were B-tracks and C-tracks,
1: those might become your favorite tunes. And they might. And that's, that's the difference between hardcore fans and the mainstream market that, right. that doesn't really come in contact with with the artist as much. Yeah. Right? They get they hear the single on the radio, but they don't dive in to find those other tracks. But that's something that the fans can do. And that's part of what we tried to do. I mean, as a promotion person, I'm trying to get to that mainstream market.
0: Right. As quick as possible. Yeah. Usually, correct?
1: Yeah. Um, there's an organizational theorist named uh, Jeffrey Moore, and um, he has this concept of uh, the chasm. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the... Uh, the diffusion of innovation theory about how yeah. like new products kind of diffuse through society through different groups of people, and sure. you have this early market, the, sunset the, technology. Yeah, sunrise you've got like the you know the the innovators and yeah. and leaders and those people that always get your product. They're always there for you, no matter what. And then there's this chasm between those people and that next group of people that's the early majority that are more pragmatic right. and want to sit around and wait to see what happens.
0: Right, and that first group's the early adopter. Early adopter,
1: right? Right? And, the, and then the there's the group, chasm. They're fans. They're the people right. that are going to buy everything right. you do. They're going to line up to buy your tickets. Right. They're they're there no matter. What you do,
0: but the early majority waits.
1: The early majority waits, and they want to see what happens. Right. And reaching that group of people is so important, and uh, because they lead to the the late majority, and eventually, yeah. you know, the yeah. laggards at the end of the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's getting across that chasm mm-hmm. that is always in my mind what I'm trying to accomplish because you can't pat yourself on the back because the, the early adopters No, that would have happened anyway without you.
0: Right, right, right.
1: So can you get across that chasm to that early majority?
0: And let me ask you this then, do you think brand helps a band catalyze that, that chasm? Um,
1: It doesn't hurt. Okay. The importance is finding the, the first people in that, that early majority. Um, Derek Sivers used to uh, run CD Baby, yeah. like an independent distribution yeah. company. He's oh, I know some, CD Baby, yeah. some amazing videos um, on YouTube. There's a TED Talk from him. and uh, But he talks about uh, the importance of finding the first followers. And it makes sense in all of branding, whether you're an artist or a brand. Or a business. And if you put it back into that, that, you know, the idea of the chasm, you know, if you're trying to find the first follower in that early majority, the first one that's going to raise their hand for you, that's so important because it's the first follower that turns a lone nut into a leader.
0: Right, right, right. So you can well said. You,
1: you can be you know the first at something, and that's great, and you're going to get the credit for it for being first. But it doesn't mean anything until someone starts to follow you and, and begins a movement. So when I'm looking at at uh, the way an artist can build over time, mm-hmm. or You're looking for that. Or on a smaller level, when I'm I'm looking at at me trying to spread a record at radio, there are those people that are going to hear it right away. They're going to put it on the air and say, this is great. And then there are going to be those people that are a bit more pragmatic in that early majority that are going to say, I'm going to wait to see if this responds, if it's a hit. And then I'll put it on my radio station. Right. So I'm trying to get to those people. I'm trying to spread those stories to them. Not to say they're more important than the leaders. But they're more important to that early majority, the late majority, spreading a record. So when you look at the landscape of music as it is right now, you've got all these artists that are streaming on Spotify and have huge profiles, but you're never going to reach that early majority and late majority unless you have radio. Right. Radio is as relevant as it's ever been. Still matters. Absolutely, it matters. And- because so, of
0: distribution, it's about distribution, it's about getting to ears. Yeah. Right. In a different medium.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it maybe the the 17-year-old kid is going to find something on Spotify, but you know, the soccer mom is not. So, how do we reach those people? How do right. we get to those fans? And that right. goes back to how you know radio is very well segmented in in formats. We can find yes. our target audience. Yes. We know who we're looking for. Yes. We know where to take music. And, you know, when we can do that and we can reach those people and bridge that chasm and get to that, that early and late majority, then I feel like we've done our job.
0: So let's talk about, you said your first opportunity is in Chicago. Yeah. So what were some of the first, you know, artists that you were tasked with to promote that you <clears> remember <throat> back in the day um, or some of those first challenges that you had? Or even tell me more importantly, this was a big role for you. It was. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so what were you nervous about, or tell us what intimidated you a little bit? Now you're a veteran now, but yeah. then tell me what had to be intimidating for you.
1: Sure. I mean, Chicago is market number three. You know, it's it's a big city. Right. That's that's big time radio. Right. Out there, you know, and you know, radio stations also big brands. So. I go to Chicago and I'm walking into Q101 and my mind is blown. Like I've known about Q101 forever, right? you know? And and here I am talking to, you know, decision makers about, you know, why they should be playing records on their radio station, questioning if I really have the authority to walk in there and say, like, I know better than you do about something, which is always the wrong way to look at it. But, um, but you know, I was learning. Right. I understand. And, uh, that was that was intimidating at first, but then you realize that you know at some level they're music fans too that have just you know found themselves as gatekeepers and right.
0: to the airwaves
1: to the airwaves yeah and to those listeners in a really big market right, so right. um it, it was it was fun I, I loved everything about being there but one of the the first things I ended up having to do was um, Aerosmith was touring and
0: support of what record
1: um this would have been uh, was this Just Push Play or it was um trying to remember which one. Nine Lives, I think oh, Okay, it was. okay. So, uh, back then, Aerosmith played every market in the Midwest. They would do Milwaukee, Chicago, right, right. Fort Wayne. Of course they would. Like every, like, you know, Evansville. They were playing every arena. If there was an arena, they played it. And, right. And, uh, so I was out on the road with with Aerosmith for, you know, what felt like a couple of weeks and and running their meet and greets which were just insane and um stressful <laughs> but it was it was a great way to dive into the deep end for sure. Yeah. And working with such an iconic band oh, and, and yeah. just, you know, I talked earlier about being in, in New York at CMJ and yeah. my, my mind being blown. Now, like amplify that. By I know like by a million. Like all I of a sudden know. here I am, you know, right. in a limo with Aerosmith going to a radio station. I'm right. like, how did I get here?
0: Right, right. And how old are you then?
1: Um, then I was, you know, 28.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's great. That's yeah. great. Now, what single were you? Were you even pushing a single, or just the record agenda? Oh I can't even remember now. Okay, That'd okay. Take me some time to think yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, we had a, a few singles from the yeah, album yeah. cycle, so
0: that's great. Yeah, that's great. But so you got through it. Oh yeah, you got through those two weeks, and you said, "Hey, wait a minute, I think I can do this."
1: Yeah, and it, and it was fun, <laughs> you know, and. But, you know, trying to get Mariah Carey on the radio, which, you know, wasn't a challenge, but a lot of stress. You know, she right. meant a lot to, um, to Sony and, and right. to, the, to Columbia Records at the time. And so, yeah, there were a lot of, um, you know, a lot of eye-opening moments there. But it was it was amazing. And and just getting to see how the machine worked.
0: That's great. That's great. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about a marketing mix, and again, I know you're in promotions, not necessarily marketing, but they're all tied together. We talk about those four P's, the idea of product, price, promotion, right in place. Mm -hmm. If you could, you know, you've been doing this for two and a half decades. What is one of the biggest challenges where you felt passionate, personally passionate about a track or an artist, um, but you knew it was going to be extremely hard to place because of the climate, because of the timing, uh, lack of fund? What kind of creative things did you do? I mean, you and I were talking about this before, you know that you 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 were doing you know a lot of mainstay promotion stuff through mm-hmm. radio, but I'm sure with your passion, there were some acts that you felt strongly about. Did you you know ever try to dip into one of those other P's and help out a little bit?
1: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you talk about the four ps I think. You know, a lot of people consider promotion to be a top of the funnel exercise, right? It's yeah. Creating awareness, and so then you move through to you know consideration and purchase correct and whatever. Correct. I would argue that promotion exists at every stage of the funnel, and I would say that it even exists after that conversion. Yeah. Because it, it you're helping to make advocates, right? Right. That hopefully go on to turn other people on On. things yeah at Um, less cost at less cost word of mouth peer-to-peer recommendations right the best um so you know i think promotion exists at every every stage and you know when you're looking at you know records and, and metrics you know metrics don't build relationships you know they look good on paper right but but they don't always you know move the needle they don't and um so I think promotion is always going to be important. It's always important to have uh, you know relationships and and be able to have access to the people that that make those decisions. And when it comes to you know more directly to your question about you know when you are uh, passionate about artists, I mean, it, look, it's devastating when something doesn't go right. Um, you pour your time, your your passion into working with artists, and sometimes it pays off, and it's fantastic. And there are times when, for whatever reason, records just don't work on the radio. Right. And, you know, it's it's hard right. because, you know, you put a lot of time into it. Right, right. And, unless and you it, love it. But it happens every time because unless a record peaks at number 1 you always feel like you could have done a the little better.
0: more i know i know and
1: even when it's at number 1 you're like oh but we were only how long there for will it last, week. right how long will it stay you know like what's the staying you know, power some other artist was there for 6 weeks right we we're only there for 2 weeks so right. like you it's know a what did we did do wrong <laughs> yeah so there's there's always you know that feeling that you could do something more but um but there's nothing more rewarding than seeing uh, an artist go from 0 to 60 um you know, we, we've seen artists that, you know, nobody knew about. And, and you know, like, like I, I got to be on the ground floor of, you know, Destiny's Child and, yeah. then, you know, seeing what Beyonce has become. And then, you know, John Mayer, you mm-hmm. know, I drove him around in the car to go, like, you know, play songs on his acoustic guitar at right. radio stations. Right. And, Beautiful. you know, and, and, you know, those things were great. You know, taking Adele. To to radio and turning people on to her mm-hmm. amazing all timer voice, those were talk about those were talk really about cool
0: talk about authentic yeah completely.
1: Right. And then you know you go from those days where you know I get to drive them around and spend a couple of days on the road with them to the, watching them you know play stadiums and arenas right. and and move people around the world and you right. see what these albums have become and it's like you know not to take any credit for any of it but just being thankful to have been a part of some of those projects, those are the ones that you really, really remember.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's great. And, and, and being grateful to just be uh, like you said, a part of that. Yeah. Right. Is, is a beautiful thing about the whole rock and roll community. Why you sure. wanted to get into it in the first place. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: Or then, you know, um, Kings of Leon was a good example. Um, One of my
0: favorite bands.
1: Yeah. Well, only by the night was, you know, an amazing uh, record. And so we, um, at the beginning of that album cycle, They were playing uh, theaters, you know, two to 4,000 seat theaters. By the end of that same album cycle, they were selling out arenas. You know, we had Sex on Fire that was a hit at rock radio, but then Use Somebody became a massive multi-format record, number one pop record. It was 10 years ago. Really? Um, And Now you're dating us. Yeah, but (laughs) I remember they they played the Schottenstein Center here in Columbus. Yeah, I, I was there. Okay. I was there. Amazing show. Yeah. Um, but I just sat there looking around at the arena. And I was like, wow, now this is the power of radio because their fans were always there.
0: That's not going to happen just Spotify. Went, oh,
1: no, it's not. But I mean, those <laughs> fans were, you know, the core fans were always there. Right. But look what radio did in the course of one album cycle to take a band from a theater to right. an arena tour. Right. right. And, and credit to those guys didn't change them a bit.
0: Right, right. And they had some that they were an opening act for you too for a while as sure. well, weren't yeah. they? So and that always helped. I'm sure the Irish Great boys, yeah, the yeah. Irish boys probably said, "And if you <laughs> do this, right, <laughs> perhaps, <laughs> yeah, that probably helped a little bit." So when I was thinking about you coming on the podcast today, you know, and I was thinking about performing artists that you've been around for nearly three decades, these three words kept coming, and that was the word community culture and entertainment when I'm thinking about promotions Mm -hmm. and inside the word community is unity inside the word culture is cult inside the word entertainment is enter Mm. and if you think about those three words um you know unity and you know this idea of entering a world and unity and and a cult And by a cult I mean a positive cult not a negative cult a tribe a tribe when you're doing promotions now verse versus those early days And you think about those words, the idea of unity, of entering into something, a cult or a tribe, how would you say those words today influence you when you're thinking about a new artist or the next Adele in trying to promote them? Because what you just described about Kings of Leon is exactly this idea of unity, enter into a a tribe or a cult together.
1: Yeah, Um, I I mean, I think it drives you. I think you know when i when I listen to something if if I truly believe in it, I see what could be right, and now it's just about getting them there right, right and so yeah i think I think those things certainly drive you know your efforts. I don't know that you can steer an outcome, uh, but you can certainly put the band in position to connect with their audience to enable that to happen, right um, but it's sort of like you know, you can't create something that's viral,
0: you know? Right, right.
1: You know, uh, viral is an outcome, but it's not a strategy. You can't plan on it. So you can put put a band or a record into position to succeed. Sure. And put everything you have behind it. Sure. And you hope that those things like a tribe come together, that the the fan base is out there, that you can activate that fan base, that the artist can communicate, with those fans through social media and other ways to help build their brand. And and you see it happen. Right. Um, You know, from my vantage point, I'm kind of in a silo working on radio, but I can also work with radio stations through their social media and through their websites and through like other things that they do, uh, reaching community as you're talking about. Um, So those things are possible. From a radio promotion standpoint, but then you know we have other departments around the company that are doing you know digital marketing. We right. have you know straight up marketing people and PR people that are the best at what they do. Right.
0: Um, creative services. Yeah.
1: So I know where where I fit. Sure. Into that puzzle, and sure. I know my place in in the marketing mix. But um, it takes that entire marketing mix, at, which is customized and different for every artist to to get to where you're talking about.
0: Which we were talking about earlier, and I want to I want to. Talk to you about my, my personal experience at Geffen for two albums. And this idea, you know, you were saying that you, you know, you guys are actually customizing uh, that marketing plan and the promotions around each uh, performing artist. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a breath of fresh air to hear. Um, um, I certainly had the opportunity, as I was saying to you, to work with one of the probably the greatest publicists in rock and roll, a woman by the name of Bryn Brydenthal. Um, who has done everyone from, you know, the BGs to Sir Elton John and and uh um she's an artist within artists, right? She's an artist who knows how to position and promote artists. Right. And um when you said that you, you know, that you guys are that you're doing that, that was interesting to me because if you think about the idea of brand differentiation, which I want to talk a little bit about with you. Sure. Because I've I've heard I know my own story inside of a label. And Geffen certainly did not try to brand us, though I do think that Michael Rosenblatt, who signed us and signed Madonna and Depeche Mode and the B 52s sure, and a yeah. few other good brand uh, bands, he just tried to catalyze what was already in us. He was trying to unearth faster what was already in us. Mm-hmm. And as an AR guy, artist and repertoire, that was really important to me to have that connection, Andy. And so I'm sure even on the promotional side, having that connection with an artist that's trusting in that way is important. And I was thinking about when Elvis, you know, first started shaking hips in the, 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 as a differentiator and the Who was smashing things as a differentiator. Uh, the Sex Pistols were cutting their body as a differentiator. The Clash uh, was, they did not name themselves um, one of my favorite, you know, the only the, one of my favorite copy lines. The only band that matters. That was done by CBS, hmm. CBS Creative Services. Uh, a guy by the name of Gary Lucas came up with that line because they didn't know what the hell to do with them. <laughs> so <laughs> the original line was something like the only English band that matters, and it went to the creative service copy ever at CBS, and he says that would be a great line but it's not provocative enough. Get rid of the word English." And he goes, so as the story goes, Gary said, well, now it's not true. And they said, that's our job, we'll make it true. Right. Right? Sure. Now, sure enough, in this one instance, The Clash, to many of us, uh, my favorite band of all time, became the only band that mattered, right? How much does, so, so I think that's an oddity that that happened because CBS at the time said we weren't quite sure what to do. But my question to you is on a promotion side, and we're talking about brand differentiation, we're talking about helping in positioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you said to me, before we sat down together today, oh, we customized those plans to each artist, I loved it, I applauded it when we were talking
1: about it. Tell me about that process. Well, you mentioned points of differentiation. Yeah. So what makes you stand out? You focus on that. What makes you different? You know, why you? You right. know, if if you're a band, right, this w- wasn't luck. No, it something wasn't special luck. happened. But, but there's, something, there's something there that separates you from everything else that cuts through the clutter. There's a reason you were signed. There's a reason people come to see you. What is it? And you focus on that. You focus on those points of difference. Right. Uh, and you know, we talked earlier about how you know the job of a marketer is to amplify the story sure. that, that resonates with your audience. And usually, it's going to be what makes you different. So you know, putting you know artists into the same mold and trying the same thing, like that's just repetition. Um, you have to challenge yourself a little bit to to do things a bit differently. You're mm-hmm. talking about the ease of repetition versus the challenge of imagination.
0: Right. So well said. So
1: nothing is going to make your efforts more stale. Right. Or more ineffective. Right. Than if you're trying to do the same thing for Brands or artists that are completely different, chasing different a trend, points of chasing a trend. Different, like yeah, you can't. So you focus on what makes them special, and you find a way to communicate those attributes to the people who would care.
0: Like you said, you were all you were you almost even stayed in Nashville, right?
1: Mm, interesting um,
0: story there. Yeah, so good. So tell us. So tell us.
1: Well, I I had an opportunity to move to Nashville. Yeah, and this was with Columbia Records yeah. at the time, and this would have been in what well, I think two thousand and. Uh, so my wife and I moved down there. You know, I was the only non-country guy working in the Sony Music Nashville <laughs> office. They put me in a basement that had green walls. It was terrible, but at least I was there. So I was working on Music Row, and I loved it. And the um, the day that we found a house uh, in the Cool Springs area near yeah. Franklin, south of the city, um, they accepted the offer on the house, and my wife and I go out to, um, to dinner to celebrate. We're at the Morton's. It was right across from our corporate apartment. So we have this great dinner, and we're celebrating. And as I'm leaving dinner, we're crossing the street. Yeah. My phone rings, and it's my boss at the time. And he says, uh, hey, I got this idea.
0: <laughs> and you're like, I, I hope I, you don't. I'm
1: like, well, what's up? He goes, I want to move you to Dallas. Like I just That's got you here. Bought a house. I bought a house tonight. Like I just I, bought a I, house. I just bought a house. Can you get out of it? <laughs> um, yeah, probably. I mean, I you know we haven't closed on it. He's like, get out, of it, get out of it. So, um, and I felt bad for the the real estate agent because right. she had spent three months with us, right? And then we oh, took off and left the city, and, and she made no money, and right. I, I felt horrible. But but that was my short time in Nashville. I thought I was going to be there forever when I when I got down there, and. Um, it was a very short stay <laughs> and on to Dallas. You
0: didn't even get to move the boxes into the house.
1: No, my stuff went from Cleveland directly to Texas. And, and so I never had a mailing address in Nashville, although right. I lived there for three months, had an office there, and right. technically bought a house there. But um, yeah, it, it wasn't
0: That's, to be. That is great. Yeah. That's great. So the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is some other artists that have maybe um, certainly pushed the limit of being different in branding mm. and one of those uh, that i'm going to harken back to uh, uh, you and i would call it a legacy band was you know the idea of having makeup and costumes and being comic book characters like kiss mm. and um you know kiss is talk about a promotion talk about a walking promotion sure right the licensing to kiss products is over 3500 licenses wow. And the logo is uh, valued at over $500 million, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think about brand differentiation for a band or a performing artist and the promotion that that moment of differentiating created for a long time, do you think that kind of
1: legacy building is... Possible today? I do. You do. I do. I don't think you'd get there necessarily the same way. No, but, I don't think so either. Think think about think about Kiss. You know, it's it's the seventies. What were people buzzing about? The way they looked. Sure. And their live show. Yeah. No, that was it. That's that was all it. they. But that's what they could sell. That was it. It wasn't until Kiss Alive hit that people completely freaked out and they started selling a ton of records. But. That was, you know, those were their points of differentiation, right? right, right? They looked right, different. Their right. show was incredible, right? Um, and they were able to expand on that and build a brand over time, right, um, right? And I don't see any reason why a band can't do that now. Um, you know, does it make sense to to have all those, you know, those uh offshoots from a band? Maybe not, maybe not, maybe not you know? today. Those are there might know, be another time when Kiss it does, has all these brand extensions that maybe make I mean. sense. For KISS. Right. Maybe not for, for every artist. But right. But so you can certainly um, build your brand over time to right. be iconic. To right. that level, maybe not. That We may never see that.
0: That may be an aberration. That's
1: why I brought it up. Yeah. Right. But that's a band that was able to, to maintain their brand over time even when the music changed at times. You know, yeah. they've gone through different lineups. I know changes the brand to some extent. You know, they'd throw a ballad at you like with Beth that all of a sudden like where did this come from and different people are getting involved and that was a a hit for them and it was a ballad and that's not necessarily representative of what that band was at the time.
0: And that's exactly why I'm bringing it up and and in this case, I would argue as a brand guy that the brand for them was at times even more powerful than the band. Now, of course, the band is the brand and the brand's the band in their case. Mm -hmm. But... My point to you is, when Beth came out, we were more forgiving of Beth the song because of Kiss the Brand. It was a B-side. Was it really? Yeah,
1: it was a B-side that, you know, I think a radio station discovered. They flipped the record over. So how do you today, I'm going to tell you about our promotional times,
0: right? Mm -hmm. When, When Geffen put out our first record, Price of Progression, that was when vinyl was going away and we were switching over to CDs we were a live act and as i think you know i made up the lyrics every night except i kept the choruses the same that was our differentiating attribute so all the verses off the top of my head whatever book i was reading whatever city i was in whatever emotion i was undergoing at the time was what i would sing about and so we got a strong following from english majors and journalists um, following us from gig to gig to gig to say the theme of the song is on the forty-one box or American mess or whatever it is. But how's he going to get there? How's the band going to get there? And I knew that was our unique selling proposition, because as you know, Andy, we certainly weren't talented. <laughs> but, I beg to differ. But but, but, but but we were good at that. We were good at that. That was our thing, right? And so I, I guess when uh, Bryn uh, Bridenthal and another gentleman that actually helped break the Bee Gees, his name will come to me in a second, is a genius marketing guy inside Geffen. They said, well, since you're a live band, we're not going to, we're gonna release to radio. So this is right up your bailiwick. I wanna know what you think about this. We're gonna release the radio, but we're gonna send all the radio people a video. And it was a bit over the top, but I wasn't in the promotion business then. I wasn't certain, I I was in the brand building business. I had built a band that was a brand more than it was a band. And so they sent a video out to all the major stations, which was a hell of an expense for the Mm -hmm. record company. And it was a kit. It was kitted up. It had some interviews at Steinickers, Newport, where you started. Mm -hmm. And some of that stuff actually appeared on MTV, and we were doing a lot of college alt stuff. We were ranking on, what was that place in uh, Mm -hmm. 97.1? The alt station or something like that in um, Michigan. And we were doing very well, but they said, we have to invite everyone from Rolling Stone, from Spin Magazine back in the day, radio um, programmers into the Newport. They were going to break us in one show at one time. So we get ready to do this and Geffen is paying for flights, hotels, heads and beds, the whole thing. The night before, I jump off a 35-foot balcony in Pittsburgh and shatter my heel and the entire gig is canceled. Hmm. That is the moment I look back to. So promotion matters to me. I flew to LA, met with Freddie DeMann and David Geffen. I went there and they said, okay, so we can't use that promotional plan. So that was our promotional plan. But because of the stage antics that I was sometimes um, would get lost in, I kind of ruined our promotional platform. And I guess what I want to know from you, is that's what we did back in the day. So I'm telling you, that was 1988.
1: I mean, you ruined one event, but I wouldn't say the opportunity was lost. Okay. I mean, you're sending video for a reason, because it's like you've got to To see see. what this looks like. Like, you're not going to get it from what I'm going to play you, but if you see what we see, you're going to understand what it is. So the idea was to get everybody there to see it and experience it. Right. Because it was about an experience. It was. And that you have to sell the experience. Right. So I understand it from that standpoint. But what you did by jumping off a 35-foot balcony, now was this part of a show or was this just, okay?
0: Oh, no. I wasn't high one day. So in my opinion.
1: You're saying that's positive. I just proved the brand. I'm saying that you just added to that story. So maybe that event should have been canceled. It's like was. you guys aren't going to believe this. We've been telling you how insane this show is. Guess so what we did insane, last it's night? Right. Like, there's a reason we have to cancel the event. And but wait exactly. until you hear what
0: happened. And that's exactly. And what then we you did.
1: reschedule for some later time, and hopefully, maybe there was a video of you jumping off the thing. Like, there who was knows? It. Okay, there wasn't. Too bad. So, um, it, it, but that was part of your brand story, right, right? Right. You know, that's what made you different, and so. You know, the accident was a part of that. Right, like, right, I think right. people probably understood it. So don't beat yourself up too much yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. that being know, the thing that, like, you know, no.
0: Uh-uh. It's just a moment. But tell us today, from soup to nuts, because mm-hmm. you said that, you know, um, as they have moved your title, you know, sometimes uh, this idea of a uh, national director of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. You've done some
1: development stuff
0: you were telling me about.
1: Yeah, well, look, I, I had um, a pretty cool opportunity to… Uh, to take some developing projects and see what I could do with them. So, you know, the, the premise is that, you know, we have so much on our plate that there are other records that, that we believe in, but we just don't have time to juggle them. Right. So, um, I had the opportunity to, um, take a couple of projects and see if there was something there. You know, if there's not, at least we know. Right. But right now the record's collecting dust on the shelf. Can we see if, if there's a pulse and, um, so we were able to do that, and um, there was an artist named Grace from Australia who was the first artist that I that I worked with, and um, she did a song called "You Don't Own Me," the cover of the Leslie Gore hit from 1963. Wow! And um, another artist of ours, G-Eazy was on the record with her, and um, and we believed in it. A couple of stations had played the record, and nothing really happened. It kind of went away, and. We kept looking at it, thinking there's something there. So that was the first project that I, I got to run with. So, um, you know, not only did we send music out to a lot of people and people that we thought were the right audience to get something like that started, sure. but, you know, I put her in a van with her band and we went station to station and- um, Old school. Yeah. Well, her voice is amazing. Just amazing. It's one of those things where you got to see it. you you gotta, you gotta be in the room. Right. You know, you can hear the record and yeah, that's great. But when you're in the room, it's like, wow. Um, so we tried to replicate that at radio stations. Sure. And, um, you know, this was a full band performance in the lobby of a station or, you know, we tried to scale it down a bit, but it was, it was kind of a big production. And, um, how many stations? I I mean, we probably went to like, I don't know, eight or 10 just Mm -hmm. to get things started. Mm -hmm. And, um, I knew we were onto something when uh, we got airplay commitments as we were leaving the station. That's rare. Anybody who does my job will tell you like, yeah, promo tours, whatever. Like, you know, maybe maybe you get, maybe you you get a station or two that ends up adding the record, but typically like it's part of your setup. Right. But we were getting commitments to the record as we were leaving the station because it was so good. Right. Um, So, you know, it started with, I think it was, um, WJIM in Lansing was one of the first ones mm-hmm. to put it in, and then um, WPXY in Rochester, and then it started to react. You're familiar with Shazam. I don't yeah. know if everybody listening is familiar with Shazam, but we use it as as one of those KPIs for us. It's a, mm-hmm. a performance indicator sure. of, uh, showing that there's some kind of reaction. Sure, and if people hear the song, they're they're Shazaming it to find out what Who it the hell is, it and is. we find out, we see the correlation between you know when a song is played and when people Shazam in those markets. So we can kind of tell what's happening, and then at the time we're looking at downloads, and you're looking at streams, and you're looking at, at to find out if there's any reaction sure. to the airplay and it started to explode. Um, we were seeing number one Shazam in you know really? markets like like Lansing. So mm-hmm. then I go knock on Detroit's door and like, hey, guess what's happening? I mean, Just Lansing. like, you know, 90 miles over this way. And then that spread to, you know, NCI and Columbus helped get that started. Really? And, and then um, you know, before you know it, we we had a bunch of stations and that same thing was happening. You know, shazam's sales, instant reaction. So, um, it it got moved to the the full time priority plate for RCA, right. which was pretty exciting. And we ended from up, development it, to yeah, full
0: time is a big jump.
1: Yeah, it was. And and you know we ended up getting it was a top twenty record at, at top forty mainstream, which was great. But Huge. Um, looking at how it reacted, I mean, it was a platinum single. I think we've sold um, you know I think it's two point nine uh, million. That's great. Uh, stream equivalent sales on on that record so definitely happy that I was able to you know help and, right. and get something started and so there were a few other projects that didn't go so well but at least <laughs> we found out. But but that's that's but part of the that's, it's that's part of just knowing. as valuable it's in a way. It's part of knowing. It's part of knowing. You know <laughs> I mean I'd, I'd rather know that that something isn't going to connect right. than never have the we chance to find out. Right. Right. I love and that. So, you know, um, you can view that as a failure or you can view it as a different kind of success and finding right. out like, you know, all right, this this wasn't the right look for this artist. But right. um, but it was interesting, uh, you know, when you kind of feel like, you know, you're on an island for a moment and uh, you get to sort of customize that mix and what you think is mm-hmm. the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I leaned on some of the other departments sure. for help and, and that was great. And I loved that
0: um, collaborate.
1: Oh man. Like any kind of like, you know, cross departmental collaboration I can get my hands on. I, I love it because as much as I love doing radio promotion, I, I love all parts of marketing. I'm kind of a geek about it. And I, you know, I, I really wish that I, that I didn't, I can, and I did not know that about you. Yeah, That's great. I mean, you know, I, I wish that I could put together an integrated marketing plan yeah, for, every artist for every artist and have my hands on every right. part of it, but you know, I, I know what I'm good at. Right, and I know I need to stay in my lane when it right, comes to radio. Right. Stay in your lane. Yeah, but <laughs> but I, you know I'm happy that I see the the bigger picture at times, and I know how the different departments can work together. Right, right, right. And that's something you know when you're a, a new rep in Chicago in 1998, you don't necessarily see how right. how it all comes together. Yeah, how it coalesces. Now I think I have the um, the perspective over time to see how um, all the different parts of a label can come together to, to you know, help break a record. And I think that goes for like, you know, any kind of brand or company. It's like, you know, it's not just about your PR person. It's not just about your sales guy or, or woman. Like, it's, it's about integration, integration and how it all works together to tell one cohesive, consistent story with one brand voice that everybody understands and reaching your target market, your target audience. It's the same thing in music as it is in in regular branding. There's really no difference other than one is art, which is subjective. So you got to find your right audience. But any product is really subjective. You either like it or you don't.
0: Exactly. And I would argue that the reason we started the podcast, you know, uh, getting the brand back together, is we would argue that there are many business brands that maybe need to be a bit more artful in their approaches. Sure. Um, as well. So, you know, there are many things they can learn, learn from artists, just like artists can learn from business people. Mm-hmm. I agree. E- e- even traditional ones. So before we wrap up, I want to ask you one more question. It's been a great conversation today. Totally enjoyed it. Thank you very much mm, for being thank on. You. Um, but I want to ask you one other question that I was thinking about on the drive over the studio today. And that is, what is the just the strangest promotion? I mean, there's all kinds of promotions, like the one you told me that you actually went with a full band playing live in a studio, but what's one of the strangest promotions of your many years for doing this, where you thought, okay, well, this is crazy enough that it just might work, or, and I don't even care what the outcome is, but is there a unique medium or a very unique promotion that over these years you guys have tried?
1: Mm. I remember once we had, um a contest where the band would play in your house <laughs> of course and, of course and, yeah this was with an artist named frankie J, and i was in texas and um i think it was in
0: it was, did you have to make a
1: casserole or something no, was that no, part but, of the writer but, but it was either in in austin or san antonio i'm trying to remember now but <laughs> um so we did it through the radio station and then um you know, we get there and it's this this apartment and they're like <laughs> Two people. She, the idea was she was gonna invite her friends in. It's gonna be a big party. Frankie T plays there. It's gonna be amazing. And it was like this girl and like her sister and her mom. And and, and so we, you know, we set and up Imagine like setting up, like, you know, he's got a guitar player with him. And so, you know, serious. we're setting up speakers and monitors we're and the stations there, and they've got a banner and whatever. And it's like, there's three people in this apartment. So I mean, I, I guess we fulfilled the promotion, but it, it kind of fell flat in my opinion. But um, but it sounded good on the radio and and that, you know this was the payoff right, the promotion right. on air actually sounded great okay, so that, good, that's good. kind of the idea right, You know, right, that's right. what you're looking for But right, right. you kind of like it when the execution is, is a little too. bigger and, right. and comfortable for everybody But
0: that's know, great, that's a yeah. great track well thank you very much for uh, being on uh, getting the brand back together uh, we were joined today by Andy Flick and we really appreciate the stories and the wisdom that you've passed along in, in, in your career Thanks again for uh, listening today and you can get Getting the Brand Back Together wherever you get your podcasts.